This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 6, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm now going to give you a list. and You tell me what all these countries have in common. Here we go. Bahrain, Bahrain, Bahrain. That's just one country I said of three ways. Canada, Dubai, Guatemala, Kuwait, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines. What do they have in common? Are they countries that President Trump has picked a terror fight with? No, I said Saudi. He loves the Saudis. Are they countries that President Trump thinks wanted to burn down the White House in 1812? Well, one of them is Canada, to be fair to President Trump, which has somehow become my stock in trade on this show. Canada was a province of Britain, so no, it's still not true. Canada didn't want to burn down the White House in 1812. But, you know, it's pretty interesting that he got into a uh, war of burns over the burns of war with Justin Trudeau. So back to the list. Bahrain, Canada, Dubai, Guatemala, Kuwait, Mexico, Saudi, and the Philippines. They are the international countries that make the International House of Pancake international. The House of Pancake, 6% of their franchises, they claim, are overseas. They're in uh, 13 countries, or actually I think they say 13 countries, including Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Putting that aside, it is notable that the I in IHOP is 25% of IHOP, but the internationalism of IHOP only accounts for 6% of all IHOPs. And now the big news is that IHOP is becoming IHOB. IHOB. They're not saying what the B is standing for, but it is now to be IHOB. Perhaps I, I think a lot of people are speculating that it's breakfast. Maybe they want to get more specific and, uh, you know, rebrand themselves in this in this crazy fear of carbs age, rebrand themselves as the International House of Breakfast Omelets, or iHobo. But I don't know that that would drive sales. Maybe what would drive sales is iHockb, which would be the International House of Gluten-Free Pancakes. That would probably be a little too specific. I think maybe the only chance is to rebrand themselves as the... Um, the internationally proficient house of nourishing edibles. And that way, as iPhone, they will do killer business. On the show today, I spiel about the first lady in my book and in the eyes of America. But she never asked for the job. But first, James Clapper is on the show. He's the former director of national intelligence, and he has written a book about facts and fears. He provides the facts, and that just might lead us to a whole raft of fears. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. James Clapper was the fourth U.S. Director of National Intelligence. He has served Republican and Democratic administrations as a political appointee. He began his career enlisted in the Marine Corps. He became a three-star Air Force Lieutenant General and the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. His new book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Hello, James R. Clapper. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to start with an assertion that you make about the Russian interference in the election, swaying the election. First, I'll give you a chance to clarify your assertion, and then I'll ask you a couple questions about it. So what, what exactly are you saying? Well, I think what you're referring to is uh, my uh, belief that the Russians actually uh, turned the election. And uh, I left the government on the 20th of January at noon on 2017. And in light of what has ensued since then and what we have learned, you know, the huge difference, they've always meddled in our elections, but the big difference here was their very astute, massive, and sophisticated use of uh, social media. And so, given uh, how few votes uh, actually turned the election, less than 80,000 uh, in three states, I think it's, it stretches logic or uh, credulity to, th- to think that they didn't turn the election. Now, Again, this is an informed opinion. It is not based on some new empirical evidence. This is just what I believe. To what level? Where, where would we put this? Probably, this is what you think. This is what you think with certainty. This is what I think with certainty. You know, that's why you write books, because you can express your opinions freely, and I did. I will also tell you, and I recount this in the book, is the striking parallels and similarities between the things that the Trump campaign was saying and doing and the things that the Russians were saying and doing, striking parallels, particularly with respect to Hillary Clinton. Right. So there'd be a story on Sputnik or a story on RT that maybe Trump would advance and then it would be echoed on those sites. Or there'd be a story on those sites, then it would be echoed in the Trump campaign. Maybe that's not coordination. It just seems like a fairly large coincidence. Yeah, I don't. I don't suggest, I don't assert or don't allege collusion. I didn't have any smoking gun evidence of that officially when I left. And in fact, I still don't. Uh, but there was a certainly striking parallelism and a similarity between the thematics uh, of both the Russians and the Trump campaign. In what the Russians were doing, were they clever? Were they sophisticated? Did you assess their tactics and at some point perhaps even tip your hat to them? Uh, wow, I didn't expect them to be that good at yeah. this. Yeah, I, I, I actually do. Much, much more sophisticated and uh, much more nuanced than the ham-handed f- approach they traditionally took during the heyday of the Cold War. Uh, this was much more targeted. They had messages for everybody, Black Lives Matter, white supremacist, pro-gun control, anti-gun control, anti-Muslim, anti-Jew. They had messages for everybody. And unfortunately, our country is a ripe target for exploiting the polarization and, and schisms that exist in this country. And the, and the Russians took advantage of that big time. 
I take your point. I want to make an analogy about their sophistication. And I totally understand, uh, as has been reported before, but you get into it, how they didn't just give us pro-Trump or anti-Hillary propaganda. They tried to suppress what they perceived as someone who could be a Hillary voter by playing racial politics. So that's somewhat sophisticated. But to use an Air Force analogy, I guess a Soviet-era MiG is a good aircraft for the era, but it couldn't shoot down an F-22. Unless the F-22 didn't engage in any evasive maneuvers, uh, didn't put up any flares, pretty much allowed it to happen. I mean, we don't, you tell me, we don't worry too much about these old Soviet-era MiGs because we assume that we're going to recognize the threat and try to evade them. So that you understand the analogy, yeah. but for one of the parties actually either doing nothing or perhaps working with the enemy, would this really, should this really be seen as such a threat? Well, I consider, I consider it that way because of the active approach the Russians have taken. And, and your analogy is a good one. Uh, yeah, F-22 or F-35 is a great weapon system. If it's employed to its maximum to include its, their sensor systems, uh, it'll work. But if it isn't, if it's just dumb object flying out there, a Soviet-era MiG could, could probably uh, take it down. So the, the analogy is a good one because, in my view, we didn't have our sensors out yeah. you know, collectively or individually as we should have. We should be questioning uh, the source of information that we, that we read and hear. Okay, I came in hot. Now I want to go back a little bit and explore a little bit of your biography because your dad was a signal officer and a signal intelligence officer. Tell me what that means and what he did. Well, my dad uh, went in the Army near the end of World War II and got into, quite by chance as it turned out, what's called the signal intelligence business. And, and uh, signal intelligence is the collection of messages and communications not necessarily intended for a party to uh, intercept. So he did that against the Japanese and the Germans uh, near the end of World War II. So at the end of the war, everybody else taking the uniform off and demobilizing. He was very captured by the work, liked it, had a knack for it, and, and stayed in the Army for uh, 28 years. And so I guess maybe I inherited the gene or something, and I, I ended up following in, in his footsteps. It seems interesting to me because usually when a son goes into a father's business, I mean, sometimes it's inherited, but oftentimes it's because the father is always talking about it at home, it's in the air, but he literally couldn't do that with you. So it had to imprint upon you more in just, I suppose, his habits or his way of looking at the world. Yeah. Is that right? Well, was that, you're right, and he didn't talk about his work very much, but you know, living as a part of the family and trial and being posted in these uh, strange places around the world, you know, kind of by osmosis, you get the drift of, of, of what he's doing. And I really got in, into it, interested in it in my senior year in high school when I was at a dependent high school in, in Germany uh, where he was uh, posted as an operations officer for a Army signal intelligence battalion, which was collecting against the Warsaw Pact. And I got to know, uh, because of roughly the same age, some of the soldiers that worked for him. I was very impressed with them and their dedication to their work, even though they weren't going to be careerists in the Army. And I also got some insight in just the way he treated people and learned some things about, you know, how to lead people in, in an intelligence context. So now that my dad's gone, I, I've really come to appreciate what huge impact uh, that he had on my entire life. 
When you enlisted as a Marine Corps reservist, what was your highest ambition? How far did you think you could take this thing? Well, my immediate goal was to get through it uh, and get commissioned as a second lieutenant. I, I never I never thought too much about that. I just tried to uh, hunker down and, and do the best job I could with whatever I, the job I was given to do and maybe think about the next assignment or the next promotion. My dad was a colonel uh, when he left the Army, and uh, that was kind of my, I guess, implicit goal to try to achieve what he did. So do your job, do it well. Did you have different strategies for how you would brief an audience depending on the audience? Not too much. Uh, I mean, you always should adjust to the crowd and who the audience is, but by and large, uh, at least in the intelligence business, you're supposed to sort of render the facts, and uh, you shouldn't be tainting them or slanting them or politicizing them in any way. So the general answer to your question is, no, you probably you know, tell it straight no matter who, who the audience is. Sometimes that can be painful. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking that along the way, you would issue fact-based analyses, and they would be taken in different ways, and then you get to our president, our current president, and it seems to me, as an outsider and having read your book, that things are very different with him and that the normal way of impressing upon him information uh, that you have done throughout your career just does not work. When you briefed him on what's come to be known as the dossier, which was actually a collection of several different memos that were put together by this firm, and your motivation was to tell him that it exists, apparently. How did he take that? The way this was orchestrated is... The dossier was not a part of the assessment. We included a one-and-three-quarter page summary of it, but it was not an organic part of the intelligence community assessment, which is a very important point. And the reason it wasn't is because we couldn't validate any of the second, third-order collection sources that were originally used. We did feel, I personally felt, an obligation to let President, then-President-elect Trump know of its existence what turned out to be no good deed goes unpunished. What about President Obama's reluctance to weigh in very forcefully on how this was done as he knew that it was being done? A very good point uh, to raise because this, all the Russians have a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and ours, nothing ever like this. So we had a lot of discussions about what to do about it. There was concern that if we made a big public do about this, that that would serve only to amplify or magnify what the Russians were doing. And I think the bigger reason was uh, President Obama was reluctant to be perceived as putting his hand on the scale in favor of one candidate and to the disfavor of the other against the backdrop of candidate Trump alleging that the election would be rigged, sort of preparing the battlefield, as we'd say in the military, uh, for what the polls indicated that he was destined to lose the election, so he was going to say it was rigged. So President Obama was very reluctant to, to, to play to that narrative. James R. Clapper was the director of national intelligence. His new book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. The situation of being married to Donald Trump seems specifically unfair to one woman, one woman at a time. There's been three. 
But certainly being married to him is unfair to that woman. But the position of First Lady of the United States is, in my mind, unfair to every woman who has ever held that position. Like a minister without portfolio or compensation or marching orders, the First Lady, she's not just the spouse of a powerful person. She is made to play the role of co-head of state. We lack a monarchy, so we push this person into de facto queendom, whether she wants it or not. And most don't want it. The first first lady called herself a state prisoner, and the most recent first lady, before Melania Trump, said that living in the White House was like living in, quote, a really nice prison. Pick up on the through line. Yes, of course we need to say that Donald Trump is a horror. His administration has not been doing favors to the United States or standing in the world or the citizens thereof. And we should fault any person who in any small way supports or gives him comfort. Listen to me using phrases from the definition of treason. And yes, Melania does show up at state functions and occasionally will hold his hand in public. So she does, quote unquote, normalize him. But she's clearly in a bind. And I try to live by the dictum, don't be horrible. And I do think it's fairly horrible to excoriate a woman who is doing just the minimum required of her position, a position she didn't ask for, a position that was thrust upon her, and a position that, really, let's face it, is deeply sexist. If I were to find a flaw with Melania, it's that she does sometimes function as a first lady, and that, to some extent, normalizes this White House. It is odd to me, however, that there's such disquiet when she takes a break at being the first lady. So Melania Trump did not have any public appearances from May 10th until yesterday. That is a period which also included a break for what was described as minor surgery. So the HuffPost huffed and the Talking Points memo talked and the Think Progress people progressed into full-blown ire. But really, really, would normal observers, the types of media observers we used to call gatekeepers, should they care? Oh, they cared quite a bit. Jonathan Allen for NBC News, wrote an article headlined, Why Melania Trump's Vanishing Act Matters. And Margaret Sullivan, the ombudsman for the Washington Post, wrote, Actually, Melania, your disappearance is a legitimate news story. Sullivan's argument, and by the way, legitimate news doesn't mean it's huge news or important news. She was saying something like, this deserves to be a squib, but it deserves to be covered. I'm not saying it doesn't deserve to be covered, but I do think her argument went a little astray. She writes, presidential children have some rights to privacy, but the first lady... She's a public figure whose staff and security cost taxpayers millions of dollars a year. When she announces her pro-kids campaign or wears a statement white chapeau or attends a state dinner, news coverage is expected. It comes with the territory, whether that territory is something she sought or not. To which I say, well, it might come with the territory, but it comes with no actual money or actual power. And that she has a staff that 
is funded by taxpayers, that argument is so weak. Yes, she has a staff. But the reason that she has a staff is that she is forced into duties that she never asked for. So what would be the alternative to funding her staff? Having her perform her assignments without a staff, which is to say poorly and in a half-assed manner, or asking people to work for her for free or for college credit or as interns. It's odd to object to her not doing her job, which isn't a job in the you're being compensated for your work sense. So it's odd to object with the circular argument that if she doesn't do her job, we'd be wasting money paying for a staff that helps her do her job. I bet multimillionaire Melania Trump would gladly eliminate her staff and the trappings of her office that have been thrust upon her. I bet Melania would love to say, I am out of here. I don't want to organize your goddamn Easter egg roll or anything else. Fire all those people who are working on all those things that I don't want to do. It strikes me as a very weak objection to counter-argue, no, you can't give up those responsibilities because you have a paid staff whose job it is to help you carry out those responsibilities. Now, here's what Jonathan Allen argues. He says, quote, the disappearance of a first lady means the White House is playing without a full roster now, which is more meaningful in some situations than in others. Yet playing without a full roster, they're playing without a full roster because of the lack of a first lady. We do not have an ambassador to South Korea. The State Department has vacant two of the top six positions under Pompeo. We just filled a month and five days ago, this Undersecretary of State for Arms Control, which seems pretty important given the world and what's going on right now, but there is still no Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, and there is no Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. But, you know, let's focus on the First Lady, whose job is the Easter egg role. Yes, there is no Undersecretary of State for civilian security, democracy, and human rights. I went to the website, though. It's still there. And there is still a sidebar on that website where you could click on press releases slash fact sheets. I did so. And here's what it said. Quote, as of January 20th, 2017, all material from the administration of Barack Obama can be found on the archive hyperlink. New material will appear here as it becomes available. And there is no new material. It has been a year and a half since that statement went up. There are no fact sheets. There are no facts to be issued. There are no press releases from the Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, because there is no Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. But it's Melania Trump whose absence is causing the roster to be bereft. Allen goes on to write, The reason Mrs. Trump has been out of the public eye lately and won't travel to Quebec or Singapore could be as simple as her recovery from the procedure and a desire to avoid blood clotting on flights. Yes, yes, it could be that. And I suppose you understand how rhetoric goes. There's going to be another explanation, but I just stop there. Let us just end the argument there. A woman who does not want to have a blood clot on a long international flight. I think that's fair enough. Let's 86 the column right there. Let's spike the whole thing. Over at HuffPo, the write-up contains this phrase or these phrases. Her reemergence comes weeks after rampant speculation hyperlink about where she's been since undergoing surgery in mid-May 
And they also write, jokes, rumors, and conspiracy theories have abounded in the media and online about the First Lady's possible whereabouts. Well, guess what, HuffPo? You are the media. You are online. You don't have to spread these conspiracy theories. You don't have to demand that she serve as First Lady. You don't have to shame her for this job that comes with the territory. Only it doesn't. It's a construct. It's been made to. In 2004, Howard Dean tried to get the nomination without the help of his wife. She is a doctor and a mother and a supportive spouse by all accounts, but she didn't want to be a politician, and we wouldn't allow it. The media, and it really was a gatekeeper media then, there was no Twitter, there was really little social media and social networks, the media just wouldn't allow it. They demanded that she do interviews and stand by her man and perform the role of first lady that she nor anyone else ever asked for. Back then, I thought it was a regressive policy to thrust upon Dr. Judith Steinberg-Dean. And today, I think, again, to be consistent, it is an unfair and regressive demand of former supermodel Melania Trump. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Pierre Bienname, the F-22 of audio editing, and the MIG of dog walkers. Senior producer Mary Wilson is an F-4 Phantom in an F-16 Falcon world. She's all-weather, twin-seat, and long-range. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, will hire you as a Lavochkin LA-7 and coach you up to be a Sukhoi SU-27. I'm using the International House of Pancake pronunciations. The Gist, we're an FM-1 Aracuda with futuristic design that conceals dozens of flaws. Umpru depru dupru. And have you heard about, upon further review, I must plug the podcast. I think you'll like it. The Brandy Chastain episode is up. And the book, upon further review, which I could I could hammer you over the head with, but I will just casually mention that it is soon to be a New York Times bestseller we have on good authority. Check that out. And thanks for listening.